Hey everybody, welcome to Investing in Cannabis. I'm your host, Brandon David. This is the show that we talk about cannabis and investing and business and startups. And today, bigger companies, MSOs. We have the CFO, Brian of Verano, one of the biggest MSOs. They're in 14 markets, 80 retail stores. Uh, they're just everywhere except for California. We talk about why they're not in California yet, why that's so difficult to make that decision. Uh, talk about brands, talk about software, talk about black market, cultivation, how to maintain quality across different markets. It's a really, really great wide spanning conversation. Brian is super open and honest. You're gonna love him. I learned a ton. You're gonna learn a ton. Tune in, listen up, get acquainted. Brian, so nice to have you here. Uh, welcome to the show. Everyone is going to know who Verano is, of course, what you guys do, uh, but I like to hear it from the source. So welcome, first of all. Thank you. You know, really appreciate you having me on today. Yeah, for sure, man. And uh, just tell us, what is Verano? Sure. So Verano, we are a multi-state operator. We currently have licenses in 14 states. Uh, we operate in 11 states across the country and we're vertically integrated in nine of those states. Right now, we've got 82 stores open across the country, and we've got 11 uh, cultivation and processing facilities, which is, you know, totaling about 850,000 square feet. So we, uh, we started in 2014 in our home state of Illinois and have quickly grown, you know, both through winning merit-based license applications along with uh, some M&A along the way. So it's been a, a heck of a journey. We actually recently went public in February and have continued kind of our, our strong pace in both M&A as well as organic growth. So it's been uh, it's been one heck of a ride so far. That was a great recap. Seems like you've given that uh, that little spiel before. <laughs> well, we talked to a few investors along the way, you know, a few analysts. So it's too bad you guys aren't busy over there either. I was just looking at yes. the news ahead of this. You have a story like every day in the news. It's it's unbelievable. I mean, I've worked in a fair number of industries, some really fast growing companies. This industry, this company in particular, just puts the rest of them to shame. Uh, there really is limited sleep. There are no days off. Uh, it's second to none. And part of that's just you see crazy growth, crazy opportunity, and the time is now, right? So we are focused, you know, every hour, every minute just on how do we operate better? How do we put out a better experience for our patients and consumers? Uh, but yeah, it's it's a beast. There's no denying that. Mm -hmm. um, so you said 14 markets. Take me through those markets. I know you stay, you started in Illinois. Take me through sort of the growth progression there. And, and is there a strategy to how you sort of expanded those to those states? Sure. So, you know, we're, we're primarily focused in limited license markets. Uh, part of that's just through really the merit-based uh, licensing application process of which we, you know, we've won a fair number and continue to operationalize. You know, historically, Illinois is our home state. We do have 10 stores here uh, and we've got a pretty large scale cultivation facility you know, again, historically, we, we've got a large scale cultivation facility in New Jersey. We've got operations in Ohio, Maryland, uh, Nevada, Massachusetts, Michigan, and Arkansas. In February, when we went public, we did an incredible deal uh, with a company called Altmed. And so we actually merged together. They had really strong operations in Florida. They're one of the larger producers in Florida. They've got 34 stores uh, open there and also operations in Arizona. And so when we brought the whole portfolio together, you know, it was a really, really great footprint and they had even better people. And, and, you know, when we think about kind of people process product, 
bringing the two teams together has been really helpful for our processes, our SOPs, as well as just having great people because bandwidth is always at a premium in this space. You know, since going public in February, we've done a number of deals in Arizona, Pennsylvania, and added another store in Ohio and Illinois. So it's been, uh, you know, again, a very crazy journey thus far. Um, but, you know, I, I think where we stand today, we, we are very well positioned. We've got a lot of uh, markets that will be going hopefully adult use in the next 18 to 24 months. And we've got a really nice balanced portfolio between the retail and wholesale channels, in addition to having, you know, a strong kind of flower recognition, which is our namesake uh, in Verano for the flower and pre-rolls category. Mm -hmm. um, because of the limited license nature of this industry, M&A has become incredibly important. Um, had you done a lot of that before in your career? And did you foresee that that would be so relevant in this industry? You know, in my career, I'm not an ex-investment banker, somebody who's just working on deal flow 24-7. I've been involved with a fair number of transactions, you know, both small scale and a little bit larger scale. My previous company, we took private in a, a billion dollar transaction. Uh, but here it's just the pace um, and, and the velocity of the deals. I would say we get at least, you know, one to two deals across our desk every day. And we look at everything. It could be brands, could be supply chain, uh, could be, you know, a single single store, single state asset, or could be something bigger. And so the, the pace is just really crazy. Um, now, as we continue to transact, we, we've been pretty fortunate as a relatively new entrant that people like our currency. You know, our, our stock certainly uh, is a little bit, you know, lighter than what we would hope currently. We're trading at a discount to our peers. And we, we've known that all along because we have to put out a couple of good quarters, you know, really get you know, our story out there. And it takes time. You know, we're going against uh, larger tier one peers who have been out for a couple of years. And so building that credibility in the market. Um, but I would say in addition to that, I think our culture and our operational uh, teams really resonate when we go into the M&A arena. Um, and, and frankly, we've been outbid on almost every deal. And yet we're still able to win oh, wow. um, you know, really due to that culture. And I think that's a huge selling point for Verano and really how we were founded. That's fascinating that you've been outbid and still won. That that speaks pretty, pretty high volumes uh, about you guys. Um, you talked about going public this year. Let's talk a little bit about that decision. Why was that decision made? And then, you know, it opens you up to a lot of different things, kind of the pros and cons there. Take me through the analysis of, of why to do that. Sure. And actually, you know, rewinding a little bit, in 2018, Verano had some opportunities, you know, looking at kind of the RTO path as a lot of a lot of our, our friends and peers went through. Uh, and we actually, you know, ended up tied up with Harvest. And so that that merger and acquisition agreement was really a 12-month um, process, got selected by the Department of Justice for a second review. Uh, and in March of, you know, 20, really decided that for both companies, it was dragging on. It wasn't going to be the, the perfect outcome. At that point in time, you know, we had to regroup and figure out our strategy. You know, being tied up for 12 months, we had put some things on hold, you know, construction, acquisitions and the like. And so it was this inflection point for Verano to figure out what we wanted to do. Um, SPACs were, you know, a trend at the time. <laughs> and we ultimately decided to go, you know, go down the public path and, and do an RTO on the Canadian Securities Exchange. Now, some of the pros to that, it gives you some access to capital, uh, gives you some validation, you know, gives you a, a public currency, if you will. Um, and it's exciting, right? It also gives you a little bit of public company readiness for, you know, potential U.S. markets and uplistings down the road. So, you know, a lot of pros to, to going public, especially as we, we've done a number of M&A transactions. 
Now, of course, there's also some cons, right? Um, I think people think of going public as a massive liquidity event. And I would say for our founders and investors, you know, it's, it's really not a real liquidity event. We're, we're thinly traded, if you will, as most people are, you know, kind of on the Canadian security side. There's not a lot of institutional support, minimum retail. Um, so, you know, it's got its own challenges just in terms of what people generally expect a, as a liquidity event. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, something near and dear to my heart is the quarterly cycle, right? You got to go through earnings. You've got all the, you know, the analyst estimates. Uh, and some people feel their pressure and manage their business on a quarterly basis. Now, I will say we are well prepared. We do not manage to the quarters. You know, we've got a much bigger company that we're focused on and, and laser focused on executing our strategy. But, uh, you know, it's a potential pitfall of being public. Yeah, um, I, I like what you brought up about the uplisting. I think there's a lot of investors that are looking at that and saying either, OK, I've bought in early in the hopes that I'm going to make it to the NASDAQ. And there's others that are staying on the sidelines and saying, well, it's obviously not really time yet. How much do you guys think about that strategy? How much was it part of the original strategy in February to say, oh, well, in we think in X number of months, 18 months, whatever, we could be up with? It was absolutely part of the discussion. Um, and something you know that, that, frankly, you have to consider, right? There, there's a tremendous amount of movement. The CAOA bill has you know, really gained some momentum. And I think any incremental progress is a positive for the entire sector. Uh, and, and so we want to be ready, right? There's conversations with NASDAQ, New York Stock Exchange, you name it, right? We're all competitive. We want to be first. Uh, and, and the time is definitely getting closer. Now, I, I still don't believe there's going to be a lot of movement until spring, probably around April. And even from there, it's going to take some time. Uh, there's a lot to flesh out. There's a lot in the bill. But again, every, everything is incremental progress. Um, even as I think through some of the, the pure business challenges outside of you know, what we view as prohibition and you know, this continued war on drugs, you know, just from a pure kind of financial lens, uplisting brings a lot of opportunities. We, we've got 280E today, which really hinders you know, our ability to reinvest in the business. You've got better cost of capital, ease of banking restrictions. And one thing that isn't talked about too much is the ability to use credit cards at, at dispensaries. Oh, Those yeah. are all huge things we're excited about down the road. Um, but I would say as Verano, whether or not any of those happen, we continue to run our business and we're going to run it profitably. And so, you know, if this is five years out, we're prepared to, uh, to really weather through it and continue to perform how we know, know how to perform. Yep. Yeah. No, that, that makes good sense. Um, a lot of your retail locations, I think you said there's 80 plus or so, um, are medical today. Um, how does that differ? I mean, obviously medical is different in every state, but how does that differ? And, and when you think about buying medical, you're really speculating on when it's become becoming recreational, right? There's a huge uh, revenue difference in those two types of stores. Am, am I correct in that? Absolutely, yeah. And it, it really is almost state by state. If you look at the consumer and patient profiles, uh, even in states that go adult use, the form factors differ. Um, you know, typically medical patients are higher dose, uh, tend to lean more, you know, flower pre-roll and, you know, to an extent concentrates. And you've got, you know, in the adult use side, you've got a lot of people that would be almost kind of curious or want something that's a little more approachable, maybe an edible, uh, maybe a drink, something like that, that's going to be low dose. And so, you know, as we think about our marketing and our branding strategy between, you know, a pure medical product or a medical state and what could be adult use, you know, there, there is a pretty good divide there. Um, and that's how we think about it. Yeah. Um, and so in some of these markets that are 
soon to be wreck. How much work do you do in those markets to make that happen? You know, how, how much are you guys on the lobbying side and, and sort of behind the scenes doing work here? I would say, you know, on a state-by-state -state basis, we, we try not to, to get too deep in lobbying. Um, yeah. One, because, you know, the existing medical markets, you look at a state like Florida, I mean, it's a really strong program. And in some of these cases, you, you need to build capacity first, right? So we're focused on, you know, having the right store count, adding capacity because we, we want to preserve the medical patients, ensure that they have access to their medicine ahead of an adult use launch. And, you know, in cases where it's rushed, it, it really forces a challenge. Pricing can, can be volatile. Um, so on a pure lobbying basis, you know, we're, we're not overly active, maybe compared to some others, but we, we are definitely focused on building capacity. And, and that's where we spend a lot of our time and a lot of our energy uh, I think there's going to be tremendous movement here in the next 18 to 24 months. Some of our core states, we've got New Jersey that should be going, you know, going rack here in the next couple of months, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, should have been in, you know, less than three weeks, but hopefully we have some clarity soon. You've got a state like Florida, over 130 million tourist visits a year, uh, coupled with a really strong medical medical market. You know, that that's a lot of demand that we need to build capacity for. Yep. You know, hopefully Pennsylvania, Maryland, Ohio, and you can keep going. There's so many markets that are on the horizon of this rec transition. So for us, you know, with construction costs and timelines the way they are currently, we're trying to get ahead of the capacity. That, that's really the challenge that I foresee. Got it. Very interesting. Um, you guys just made some moves in Nevada with Sierra Well. Uh, tell me a little bit about that deal and the significance of Nevada for you guys. Sure. So in Nevada, you know, we've got a pretty good sized cultivation uh, facility today that we're in the midst of expanding. We also have, uh, you know, two open dispensaries with a third on the way in Las Vegas. Sierra Well gives us an entrance to northern Nevada and really in kind of the Reno Carson City market, which we think is tremendous. Uh, there are a lot of stores in the area, but again, it's a, it's a, it's a strong market. Sierra Well was one of the first there. And they've built up a great brand and a great you know, patient and consumer base. So for us, we're really excited. Adds a little bit of cultivation capacity, adds a great team uh, and another good banner you know, that, that we think is very accretive to our story and overall to serving Nevada. Um, so you know, we're really excited about that transaction. Mm -hmm. Very, very cool. Yeah, I've spent some time in that market. It's very interesting. Um, so we often in the news hear about the deals that go through and the big numbers associated with it. What we don't hear about, but is equally important in my experience, is the deals that you don't do. Um, and as the CFO, I wonder if there are some examples without giving names, maybe that, you know, you wish you had done or you wish you hadn't done or glad you didn't do. You know, are there are there some war stories there of deals that haven't been done? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, we call it a deal graveyard. And, and, you know, again, based on the deal velocity and just the pace and how many, how many discussions are had, there's certainly a lot that you think you, you can get to the finish line and you just can't. Um, sometimes it's simple economics. Sometimes it's a little bit deeper. For us, I would say culture fits a very big deal. Um, we want to find the right people. We want to find the best assets and the best operators, right? And so I think through that process, yeah, I don't want to name any stories or any names yeah. uh, or air some dirty laundry, but you know, there's definitely situations where really the team fit just isn't there. Um, could be the best store, best asset, you name it, but it's got to be the right fit for the company. You know, at the end of the day, we are one family and we're, we're building this platform um, in hopes that we can find the best people in every market. And that's what we try to do. But in some cases, you know, there are some, some crazy people out there. And so we, we try to avoid those at all costs. 
Yeah, I mean, that's the kind of thing you can only learn very deep in due diligence, right? I mean, the, the numbers generally are the numbers. You don't know about people until you really get in there, right? Uh, that's not surprising that that starts to be the, the barrier. Yeah, and in general, we, we try not to do turnaround projects, right? Um, for example, in Pennsylvania, I would say we now have the, the top six performing stores, the top three in Pittsburgh, the top three in Philadelphia. First mover advantage is real, but also a lot of it comes down to the team and that, finding that fit. And, and so that was you know, really critical to us, um, really partnering with the right people. But in general, you know, it's hard to do turnaround projects or really find you know, decent stores that you need to relocate or need to do this or that. Um, that's where it becomes challenging. And, and so we've just really focused on finding the best stores, the best assets. And it really makes for an efficient integration and you know, kind of future phase for what that market holds. So no distressed assets for Verano. Is that what I'm is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, I mean, not currently. Again, with our kind of pace and what we've been doing, we've uh, we've really found some tremendous assets. And yeah. I think that's really critical to our strategy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Got it. Interesting. I mean, certainly others have the other strategy, right? Of trying to pick up the pieces when it's when it's failed, which is interesting side too. Um, I want to talk a little bit about. We talked about medical and rec, and you were talking about the different products that new consumers might might want. We have this sort of narrative in the cannabis industry that there's 90% more consumers coming, right? The next 90% are soccer moms and lawyers, and they want beverages and low-dose edibles. Are we kidding ourselves? Or like, is that really coming? No, it's, it's really coming. Um, I look at, you know, like Illinois, for example, if you look at what the medical market does versus what the adult use market does, the adult use dwarfs it. And Illinois is a very high tax state in cannabis. And we always thought, you know, because of the strong medical program that that, that would preserve. And what we're finding out is there are so many recreational or adult use consumers that are curious that want to explore the products, but they want to do so in a manner that is a lot more approachable. And that's where you see the lower doses, you know, more on the edible side, uh, maybe they swap out a white cloth or, you know, a beverage. And I, I think that's absolutely real. And you're going to continue to see, you know, form factors play a key part along with really the branding strategy. Um, and there are things, you know, topical lotions, bath soaks, you name it. These product categories, uh, I think, are definitely an entrance into the cannabis market for a lot of people who have not experienced or have not used uh, previously. Mm hmm. Yeah, there certainly are plenty of options out there. I think a lot of brands that sort of make these flower alternative products, uh, what they would say is that the, the bulk of the sales still is coming from flowers, right? And, and even though there are a lot of great brands doing a lot of great things, is that tide turning? Or are those sort of like casual users going to make up enough of the industry that they should be targeted to in the way that they are today? I personally don't believe so. I mean, you still have flower and pre-rolls making up, you know, let's just say 60% of your mix. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's going to continue, right? Because for medical patients or people who are going through treatments and, you know, they are heavier dose, higher usage, more recurring visits. Um, you know, we've got people that are in our stores on a very regular basis, right? Because it's medicine, they need it. And it's a different, uh, you know, different form factor, different dose. That's absolutely going to continue, right? Now, over time, as more markets and more states kind of flip to recreational use, you might see, you know, a slight change. Um, but I think by and large, flower pre-rolls are still going to own most of the mix. You're just going to see probably, a, you know, an incremental creep up on edibles, 
as well as you know beverages and other new form factors that are more approachable. But I, I don't think it's going to be a monumental shift by any means. Yeah, I mean, look, I live in California. We have every option available possible, multiple brands in each category, and people still like to smoke flowers. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what to say. I, you know, it's a thing they'll try, right? Um, but do they want to buy a 30-pack of beverages like they would buy beer? Not that I've seen yet. Not that I've seen yet, anyway. Um, so when we talk yeah, about... Flowers, yeah. flower is always, uh, is always number one, right? You have to have good flower, fire flower. Uh, we're, we're honestly really lucky. Brown is our namesake. We learned to grow first and foremost. And mm -hmm. so, you know, rolling out new strains, staying hot, doing exclusive drops, you know, that, that's really in our core DNA and something we continue to focus on. I mean, flower is absolutely critical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I never tried any guys of your flowers. I, I would love to do that. Um, I'd to visit. <laughs> so when we talk about, sort of these new products, right? These, these alternative products, marketing becomes increasingly important, right? These are, these are maybe people that are less reticent to try. They don't want to go into dispensaries necessarily. What works for you guys? You know, billboards, are you doing digital marketing? What's working for you currently? Yeah. Tremendous question, by the way. And something you know, that really it's by market. Um, some States, you know, put in restrictions on how you can advertise, we have a pretty good billboard strategy for our retail footprint. I think that helps drive awareness and traffic. Um, and it's been pretty successful for us. So on the retail side, billboards definitely work. You know, in terms of branding, general awareness, billboards are a little harder. And digital is kind of in the infancy, in my opinion. Um, there's, again, a lot of restrictions on what cannabis can and can't do. For example, we can't just be on Instagram, you know, doing targeted ads. It's, that's a huge challenge for us. I think you're starting to see a fundamental shift. The app store recently announced, you know, that uh, cannabis can, you know, start having apps that will be approved. Yep. And so I think you're going to see this digital experience or ecosystem continue to take off. There's things like loyalty that are still, you know, in the early stages. Um, and, and I think really the digital experience is yet to come. Um, so in terms of, you know, generic email blasts that can now be housed in an ecosystem or an app, um, you know, that contains loyalty, specials, I think that's really where you're going to start to see some adoption. A lot of people use kind of the Starbucks example. You know, you go in the app, you order, you've got your rewards, it, you know, it's efficient. Um, we've seen a massive shift, notably through COVID, to kind of the online ordering and really the digital experience. So I, I personally, we are investing heavily on that side. It's not just pure, you know, SEO and website optimization. It's really about that app, that digital experience and what kind of the next steps are going to be there. Coupled with loyalty, loyalty is still something that everyone's figuring out. Um, in terms of brands, you know, we're going through some relaunching and, you know, new opportunities there. And we're going to continue to market those um, and by state, you know, figure out what those channels are. It could be something as simple as a print ad, could be some sort of digital experience and digital ad as well. Um, so, you know, it's, I think marketing and cannabis right now is, is in almost this golden age that's about to occur because of the digital side. I totally agree. Um, I do a lot of work on that side with a company called the Flower Agency. I think you and I talked about it a little bit, but in with the vacuum of Instagram and Facebook and largely any SEM, it's a crazy world, right? And when you think about how most people buy everything else in the world from Amazon, <laughs> <laughs> like, why, why is this different? And obviously, regulations prevent it from being the same way today. But 
when you look at, okay, you guys have 80 plus retail locations, how much do you think about delivery versus people in the store and sort of that, that dynamic? I mean, people want to buy stuff and have it delivered to their house, right? It, it's fascinating, to be honest. And you think about, uh, you look at like cookies, right? They'll do an exclusive drop and there's a line for, you know, a couple blocks. Yeah. That's amazing to me. And I know we've got a lot of sneaker heads here, same thing on sneakers. And so uh, for us, you know, we still do a lot of those exclusive drops, try to build the demand. That's really just, you know, a grassroots type movement. Um, but over time, that's going to change, right? Delivery is something that, you know, we do in a couple states where it's permitted, like Florida, Michigan, Maryland, Nevada, et cetera. Um, but again, we're in the very infancy of, of what delivery could look like. Uh, and it varies by state. Uh, for example, in California, I've got kind of the ice cream truck model. And in other markets, it's a little bit different. Um, the challenging thing from my perspective, you know, from a financial lens is the economics. Uh, some states require two people in a delivery vehicle at all times. Ooh. Sometimes you're handling cash. And those challenges, you know, are, are still there. So I think when you have some sort of federal movement, and it's as simple as, oh, you know, you can Apple Pay and uh, delivery is going to be a little bit more efficient. It, that's going to change. And so as consumers, we're all conditioned to go into DoorDash or Uber Eats, you know, and your food magically appears 30 minutes later. And that experience has to carry over to cannabis, but it's going to take time. And part of it's just due to the regulatory nature. This, this business, just from a regulatory standpoint, is so challenging, uh, but it's going to get there. And I think it's going to take some time, maybe, maybe two years, maybe federal movement, but I was thinking in terms of just pure economics, how do you actually fulfill in a state like Florida, you know, how do you deliver to the Keys versus, you know, the Northern Panhandle? Those, yep. are, those are things that we're still working through. But the, uh, the delivery, you know, total addressable market, the demand is absolutely there. Yeah, I mean, delivery is, um, as a Californian, it seems like a no-brainer, but there still is a lot of states that are sort of struggling with that question. Um, some brands, particularly in California, I think in a couple other markets, have even gone beyond that and done the direct-to-consumer thing, um, which in a lot of states is still very far away. But again, as someone that's set up as a retailer, does that make you nervous at all, you know, that forget cookies, but, you know, Kiva or any, any of these big brands can bypass you guys? It, it's definitely a consideration, right? And I think a lot of people are trying to position themselves as brand distribution. And it's still a long ways away, to be yeah. honest. And I think at the end of the day, people still like a retail experience. What we've tried to do is not go one way or the other. And we take a balanced approach in every state we're in. So, you know, if we've got 200,000 square feet of uh, cultivation in Illinois, we've got 10 stores to go with it. And there's a lot of really good benefits to doing that. And I think we're going to continue to focus on that. But, you know, over time, if direct to consumer is, is something that's viable and maybe federally allowed or even allowed within certain markets, we're going to look at it. But at the end of the day, people still like that retail experience. And I think there's different things we can do uh, to help either drive the demand or the traffic to the stores as well. Um, but, you know, we've got a couple of levers there to, to keep it really enticing. Um, just like, you know, we'll use Apple as an example. People can order from Apple, it'll show up on their doorstep, right? But people still like to go to the store, like to learn about it. There's an education component to cannabis. There's, you know, a first time experience where you want to sit with a bud tender. You want to learn more about the product. You want to have, you know, a more immersive experience. And maybe in some states, you can actually smell the bud deli style. 
And that experience needs to, to sustain and we think it will. And so that's kind of, you know, why we're, we're really pleased with our current strategy, but know that, you know, as time evolves and things shift in the industry, we'll be ready. It's just like interstate commerce. We believe that it's going to be a long time out. Um, and, you know, if it comes in five years, then, then we'll be well capitalized and we can pivot and have some sort of outdoor grow that can feed biomass. You know, that's definitely an option, but we're, we're not going to prepare for that today. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I think of direct to consumer in a very similar manner. There, again, there's still so much opportunity just from a pure fulfillment distribution center strategy. But, uh, you know, direct to consumer is absolutely a thought that we'll, we'll continue to stay focused on. Yeah, interesting. I mean, certainly a long way off, particularly in a lot of the markets that you're in. Um, one of the problems that is here today that I like to talk about a lot is the black market or illicit market. And it's just a massive problem here in California. Um, I wonder how much you guys think about that. And, you know, to varying degrees, how big of a problem is that in, in different markets for you? Yeah, I, I think California is probably the most notorious or at least gets the most press. And it's part of the reason why we shied away from it. Yeah. I think as markets have taxation or, or you know, pricing that, that's really, uh, you know, <laughs> overly egregious, that's where it leads to, to more illicit opportunity. Um, in California in particular, I mean, the, the market there is pretty wild. And that's why we've shied away from it, to be honest. It's hard to compete with the illicit market. It's something that we really don't want to get into. Um, but, you know, again, from a pure financial lens, I tend to think there's some taxation and pricing impact that leads to you know, more of an illicit market. And Absolutely. so we see that in some other states. But, but I think California probably gets the most headlines, especially for the growing climate. So not only is the black market big in California, but we're exporting a ton of illegal weed to other places, too. Uh, you're, you're in Illinois. What's the culture around it there? You know, I mean... Do people want to buy cheaper weed from California or do they want to do it legally? I think a lot of people would prefer legally, but you certainly still have a, you know, a fair portion of the market that will do it on a cost basis, right? And if it's cheaper to export it from California and that's available, you know, you still have a small portion of the market that's going to go that route. But, you know, I think really around the regulation, people want to know what they're getting you know, how it's testing, what the profiles look like, et cetera. And I, I think that's a big differentiator, just buying it on the legal side. Um, and I think, you know, there's some amazing flour in the market on the legal side, whereas in the past, maybe, you know, there's certain fire coming from uh, certain markets. So I think it's definitely come a long way, in my opinion. It's come a dramatically long way. And if you think about the way people eat today, right, you know, it's got to be vegan or vegetarian or shade grown or keto. I mean, I live in LA, so it's insane here. But anyway, um, the idea that they buy cannabis that isn't tested and they don't know everything about it is just insane to me, right? Like you care (laughs) more about the tomatoes that you eat than the weed you put in your lungs, you know? Um, that's, That's a bizarre thing to me. But, you know, I think there's a really long tradition and culture of it. And it's just hard to break. It's really hard to break. Um, You're always going to have the kind of an underground scene, right? Same in, you know, alcohol or other markets. It definitely is there. You know, one thing we always talk about is if you're a patient, a medical patient in Pennsylvania, and you're used to, you know, high quality indoor flower, you know what you're getting, you're not really going to change and go to, you know, some unknown or some illicit product. And so that's part of our interstate, you know, thoughts as well. But, um, you know, we just, 
that's always something that we consider. What are people experiencing in each market? What are they used to, right? You know, if you're used to an amazing uh, indoor quality product, it's different from greenhouse or outdoor, uh, you know, no products created the same effectively. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a combination of all these things, right? It, it's the quality of the product, it's the price, it's the convenience, which comes back to delivery, right, or order ahead. Um, and then hopefully it's these alternative products that the black market can't produce that well. You know, the edibles, the beverages, even really high quality vapes, they're hard for the black market to do. Hopefully that starts to, to turn the tide some because it's very, very frustrating for these operators and brands that do it all the right way and pay a ton of taxes. As you know, nobody knows better than you, you know, and it's just insane that they're still fighting this battle. But anyway, I'll get off yeah. my soapbox. 100% agree. Yeah. And in particular in California, it's a tough state to operate in the legal cannabis market. I mean, taxes are, are egregious, in my opinion. Uh, they really yes. are. And I think, I mean, but that's the California story overall. No, of course. Right? Yeah. Um, of course. But if you look at like, you know, mainstream, a lot of MSOs, a lot of large brands are able to start growing really incredible product at scale. And that's something that people are just getting better at day after day, better genetics, better strains. Um, and something that you can do not in quite a mass market format, but getting there. And I, I think that's impressive and something that hopefully will, you know, take away a little bit from, uh, from the black market. Yeah. Uh, so I think it cuts both ways, right? Like certainly the economies of scale and, and getting, uh, you know, a gram of flour or a pound of flour to a certain price is, is going to help. Um, but I think that there's this narrative, whether right or wrong, that at some point we're all going to be smoking Bud Light, right? And that like the big MSOs are going to get so efficient, but the, the quality of the product is going to suffer. Um, do you hear that, first of all? And what says you guys about that? No, I actually, I think the opposite. I think as everyone can, you know, with each passing day, I think flowers getting better, strains are getting better at scale, right? In large scale, not that it's, you know, comparative to Bud Light or Coors Light. <laughs> um, but I think a lot of people are focused on the genetics, doing different strains um, and having some of those unique drops. And that's something that we think about. How can you be a large producer at a mass market size, but also still be cool, still have a craft type experience, something that's curated or, you know, do exclusive drops, limited strains, always pushing the envelope on the R&D side. And I think part of it comes down to, you know, people and the process side, we continue to invest in automation and really able to streamline our process to put out an even better product, right? It's all about continuous improvement. And as more people are turning to cannabis, you're seeing more investment in equipment and, and some of the other, you know, really processing things that help create an even better product. So I think we're, we're still, you know, pretty early on in, in what could be amazing quality and amazing product coming at scale. And that's, that's exciting for us. That's super exciting. Um, you, were, you, you mentioned automation. You must get hit up constantly by software providers and and tech companies that want to use you or sell to you i mean you're in the news every day right how what's that process like of sort of intaking them evaluating them onboarding new technologies i know a lot of cannabis companies are very res, very hesitant to make big technology moves how do you guys think about that the technology side is so hard. <laughs> and, you know, we get a lot of inbounds. A lot of people want to get into cannabis or the sector. Um, and time is our most precious asset, which is hard. You know, you only have so much bandwidth in a day. So it's hard to screen through what's legit, what's not. I would say we, we do talk to our peers. I mean, it's kind of a community of people. We're all going through the same challenges. 
on the tech side, we're kind of limited. You're required to use a seed to sale system in, in every state. Um, on the point of sale side, I mean, there, there's a lot of different point of sales out there that we use. And even on the wholesale side, you know, there's a couple of different platforms that we use. So to bring all of that data together is really challenging. We've got a really amazing analytics team that actually pulls together all that data, um, you know, from all these disparate systems and helps us really, you know, make data-driven decisions. But technology is continuing to get better. You know, on the automation side, I think about equipment. And a couple of years ago, most people weren't making good equipment for cannabis. When you think about how do you package, you know, bud in a jar? Um, how do you how do you put labels on? And each state's different with some of the requirements. Uh, how do you automate, you know, joints? These are really tough challenges. And, and I hate to say this, but almost every facility we have has, has a graveyard of old equipment, right? Sure. The only way to learn and to try something is actually to buy it, you know, run it through. Does it work? Is the quality good? And it's really hard in the sector, but I would say there's been continued investment from a lot of equipment manufacturers all through the supply chain. And that, that's been rippling through. So, you know, over time, we, we've seen definitely a better better experience on the equipment and the automation components, what we have readily available for our production side of the house. So, you know, between the software and the tech and really the equipment, it, there's been a notice, not, not, noticeable increase just in terms of what's available to us. Yeah, the technology side is fascinating to me because as you know, cannabis is a sort of previously Luddite industry, right? They're very, very hesitant to do that. We've been doing this the way. So it's very interesting to see how that evolves. And obviously as it becomes more corporatized, it's just required, right? You know, the economy of scales require some of that adoption. So very interesting to see that part of it. There's people that are doing like, you know, there's some really cool vision stuff. stuff. There's drones that inspect your, your flowers, you know, all this all this stuff. It's, it's really interesting, actually. Yeah, I mean, there's camera systems. You can put in rooms that'll take a picture of your flower, you know, pretty much every minute and use yeah. AI to detect, you know, are you properly watering? You know, how, yeah. how's the growth cycle looking? Um, there's a lot of really interesting stuff that's coming out. And yet I still think most grows have a human that looks at every plant every day. Oh, 100%. You have to. Yeah, you have to. Yeah. Um, plants are tough, right? <laughs> it's a tough business. Oh, honestly, I can't grow anything. I, I can't like grow a tomato. So um, I, <laughs> I'd be really screwed. But yeah, um, we talked about California a couple times. You guys aren't here yet. Um, why? When's the right time to come to California? Yeah. So from my seat, it comes down to, you know, really ROI and being in the right states with the right capital deployment, right return on invested capital. And for the most part, that we've shied away from California for that reason. Um, we have so many other states that we're really focused on putting in a lot of dollars that California is a market we want to come back to, right? It's the largest market, so it's always nice to have some sort of presence. Um, what we're hopeful is to find the right people, the right assets down the road. And you know, as California continues to evolve, I think the picture becomes a lot more clear. There's so many brands, so many operators, uh, and, and it's just, you know, really when we look at the time and the return on invested capital, it, it's just not where we'd like to be at the moment. Now, that's definitely going to change. And there's certainly other states that we want to circle back to because the markets are strong. You know, it's a great place to be and operate. And so, you know, California is just one of those ones that we're going to circle back to. Again, there's only so much bandwidth, only so much capital that we have. Um, and we've got a lot on our plate. So I think it's, you know, maybe the next 12 to 24 months, we're going to stay close. We're going to see if we can maybe find the, you know, the right operator. 
and uh, see if something works, but it's just not a today uh, discussion. Right. Yeah. Other states that you want to go deeper on that you haven't yet? Well, I think there's a couple a couple ways I, I think about this, right? Um, from adult use, you know, you've got New Jersey, Florida, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Ohio, some of our core markets, hopefully going in the next two years to, uh, to recreational. Illinois is expanding, you know, a number of licenses, which is really good for our wholesale business. And then, you know, I kind of break this into emerging markets, those that are on the horizon, uh, notably on the Eastern seaboard. So New York, Rhode Island, Connecticut, you know, states that are, are likely to, to be going adult use very soon. And, you know, we're, we're going to continue to look at some of those. You've also got other programs kind of in their infancy. So Texas and Georgia, you know, Georgia just awarded the, the six licenses recently. Those are interesting to us. Um, now, whether we, you know, we try and make a move and get it now or, or we kind of, you know, wait and see, um, who knows? But there's a lot of really interesting states out there. I think really strong markets. And again, you know, we're in the very early stages of what we view as a long game. Um, I, I think you're going to continue to see consolidation in the space. Most regulated industries consolidate down to just a handful of key players. We, we definitely want to be in that mix. We've got a little bit, you know, different operational prowess. Uh, we've got a really strong margin profile. We own a good chunk of our real estate and, and think we're pretty well positioned for, you know, hopefully some federal movement. But uh, when you look at, you know, really the U.S., and kind of the tipping point we're at, there are some really incredible states that are that are on the horizon. So I, I tend to think of it as a really fun time, you know, on the business side, right? We're going to place some bets. Uh, we're going to continue to be acquisitive where it makes sense. And, you know, from a consumer and a patient standpoint, it's a great time. It really is. Oh, it's an amazing time to be a consumer. There's so much options, so many different great. We actually have to decide for the first time what we like. Like, do you like pre-rolls or is that just what's been around, you know? Um, so when you talk about um, these individual markets, uh, how do you maintain the quality and experience of the flowers or dispensaries or whatever when you continually expanding um, across different markets? How do you ensure sort of that, that consistency? It's so hard to scale in this business. Uh, a lot of it does come down to people in process. So we've got national teams on both the retail side as well as you know really our cultivation and production side. And these are people that have been in the business for years and years, and they know what it takes to to set something up in one state, operate in you know nine, ten states. And at the end of the day, there's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears that goes into it. So a lot of lessons learned along the way. Um, but you know those people are critical to our success. And then it's really about having robust, you know, SOPs and having those standard operating procedures in every state. When we go to build a new facility, we take all of our lessons learned. So every new facility gets even better. Um, it's tough. It really is tough. And at this point in time, I mean, we've learned a lot. And so we continue to deploy that every day, but it comes down to the people in the process. It really does. And, and that's, that what's, that's what leads to a successful, a consistent product, something that will continue to push the envelope um, and just keep bettering ourselves, you know, continuous improvement every day. Well, I like how honest you are about it because it's really hard. And I think it's, it's one of the things that we're going to see people struggle with and maybe separate some of these companies um, as they get beyond the sort of buy up everything as quickly as possible and actually get into a stable, scalable business. It's going to be interesting to watch. Um, in addition to software and technology providers that hit you up all the time, I'm sure there are a number of founders 
uh, of brands that are listening currently and just dying to be acquired by a big company like you. How do you think about that process of brands buying versus building? And I mean, you must be approached constantly. We are. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, there are so many good brands out there. It's a traditional make versus buy analysis. If it's a new form factor, it really comes down to maybe time to market. If we had to create something ourselves and, you know, put the branding around it and go produce it. And that timeline is lengthy. It might make sense to acquire. And so that that's one option. The other is just what's the current reach? You know what I mean? Is, is there a massive following? Is it, you know, a really good channel that we're not in? And it's definitely a consideration that we go through. Um, we, we typically try to go it ourselves. And I think at our current scale, you know, just being with our footprint and our, our kind of retail store footprint, we can almost deploy a, a CPG playbook, if you will, where, you know, we can launch something at, at scale, at mass, you know, maybe overnight. And that's something that we continue to think about. But I, I'll be very honest, we get approached by a lot of brands There are a lot of great brands out there. And we look at a lot of them. It, it has to make sense for us. It has to make sense for the brand as well and make sure that we can, uh, you know, we can deploy in a successful manner. I think California is a, it's just a hotbed for, for amazing brands and different form factors. Yeah. And so for us, it's a consideration. How do you deploy that elsewhere? Does it make sense? Uh, and it comes down to that classic make versus buy. So, you know, I won't rule that out. It's definitely something we look at and, you know, it has to make sense, but uh, it could be part of our strategy going forward. Well, I think the simple answer, and I won't make you say it, I'll say it, is there aren't that many good brands. <laughs> so like, you know, when, when you think about buying a brand, like to your point, what's their reach? Like, what's the value of this considering you're limited to a couple states, one state maybe? Um, yeah, very, very interesting analysis. We'll see if that changes going forward. Um, I want to switch gears just for a few minutes, talk about sort of you, the executive behind the company. Um, are you a cannabis consumer? Tell me about your, your own relationship with cannabis. I, I am. Yeah. Uh, I would say I'm a casual cannabis consumer. You know, I got into the business, uh, primarily I, I've been in manufacturing healthcare and tech, and there's been a massive shift in, in Chicago alone. Right. And I've had a lot of friends get in the industry. Uh, so I was really blessed to kind of find Verano when I did, and I think it was almost fate, but, you know, as a consumer, I would say I'm very casual, right? You know, I've been to Colorado in the early years, Oregon, et cetera, and enjoyed products, you know, more along kind of like the edibles, different form factors. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not a big flower person myself, but I appreciate good flower. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'm probably more on the casual side, but I will say I, I've tried to experience different things, get to know the product intimately, learn more about it, right? It's a continuous education. There's so much, you know, whether it's health benefits, uh, some sort of topical balm to a bath soak. I mean, you name it, you know, I'm always trying to learn about it. And it's so fascinating. For me, you know, I think there's a lot of preconceived notions about the industry. And I always tell people, you know, if you just think it's, you know, younger kids trying to get a high, you need to spend time in a medical market and be at a dispensary. And you see these people where they're going through chemotherapy, they have, you know, a condition where cannabis and the plant is really the only thing that helps them get through their day. And it is unbelievable, you know, really the impact and the purpose and the mission that you feel in this industry. And it's something that that's hard to explain or put into words, but it's very, very powerful and moving. And it, it's something that I get excited about every day is continuing to deliver that, especially on the medical side. Um, and it's to me, it's very rewarding. I'll put it that way. 
Yeah, no, you feel a certain obligation in this industry because there is that very important component of it. Um, In some of the states that have become recreational, California included, the medical market has all but gone away, really. Um, Is that something that concerns you about other markets? Should we have dedicated medical markets? I, I personally believe so. I think there should be benefits offered to the medical side. And I, I think in a lot of states, it's taxation or, you know, even in some markets, it's, you know, your guaranteed product or, you know, you, you've got a dispensary that you can continue to go to. Um, so it really depends what the benefits are by state. Over time, if it's just one market and everyone's got, you know, their access that they need, especially on the medical side, I think that's fine. And, you know, really not something that we focus on. Our bigger concern is when medical markets flip to recreational and there's not enough supply. And so how do you ensure that people have access that they're taken care of. They don't have to stand in line for an hour. Um, that's always something that we're focused on. But you know, over time, if there's adequate supply, everyone you know has access to what they need. I think it's it's certainly fine. Uh, they should at least get some tax breaks, right? I mean, let's let's just at a minimum. That, Agreed. Be- you know, again, in our home state of Illinois, there's a massive, massive difference between how medical and adult use cannabis is taxed. And mm-hmm. so, I'm all in favor, you know, of ensuring that medical patients have cheaper access and especially through the taxation it just makes sense Mm -hmm. uh so as we said there's so much news today every day you guys are in the news the other mso's are in the news uh, the funds are in the news how do you stay on top of that what do you read do you do you pay attention a lot to the rest of the industry are you focused on verano kind of tell me about your i guess morning reading process. Yeah. <laughs> it's tough, man. It really is tough. Um, there's so many statistics, news, yeah. every state's unique, uh, even getting up to speed on the regulatory side. You know, I try to stay plugged in. I definitely listen to a number of podcasts. I'll read things like New Cannabis Ventures, MJ Biz Daily. Um, we get a lot of kind of market surveillance with a lot of the press releases and news. Um, so, you know, you try to do the best you can. But at the same time, I will say this, we are so focused on what we're doing and our strategy. It's easy to get caught up in the industry and what else is happening. Um, But to remain focused is really critical. Um, It's nice to be on the pulse, but also to to really think about what can we do better as a company day in and day out to continuously improve. And I think there's like a, a nice balance to strike there between being educated on the industry and what's happening versus staying really focused on your own house. And so, you know, I, I try to do a lot of reading and listening, but it's, it can be exhausting sometimes. It really can be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, how does that relate to being in Illinois and Chicago? Um, maybe not thought of as the cannabis capital of the world. Uh, how does it feel? I mean, is it different there? Is it, a, are you able to focus more? Like, kind of take me through the community there in, in terms of cannabis. Yeah, I think it's a pretty strong community. You've got, you know, really lengthy medical base where, you know, they're active on Reddit and forums and, you know, people are passionate about the product. And so it's really good feedback. It's fun to learn about. You also, you know, at one point had some of the largest MSOs based in in Chicago. You still have Cresco and GTI. You've got Pharmacan, Grassroots is here. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they're almost calling it like the Silicon Valley of pot, which is pretty funny. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's definitely a community, you know, where we, we, you know, try and connect and share different experiences. You know, we talked about software and technology and stuff like that. You know, we're all going through the same pain points. So trying to share some, some tidbits. 
I think by and large, it's a really good community of people who are educated on the product, people who are passionate about it. Is it California? No, I don't think so. Um, but as that might be a good thing. Evolve, <laughs> yeah, as states continue to evolve and you've got more people using and trying, I think it creates even more momentum. And we're just starting to see that. I mean, Illinois has been adult use for just over 18 months. It's a very, very strong, large market. And you've got people who are passionate. So it's, it's come a long way. Um, there's no doubt about that. Yeah, no, we certainly have come a long way. And it's very exciting just to be here. Just feel lucky to be in this time. Um, could have been born literally any other 100-year period, and we'd have no chance at any of this. So it's a, it's pretty exciting. One of the funny things that's come along, uh, I was reading an article about a community that was upset with the smell of one of your cultivations, I think in New Jersey. Uh, that gave me a little bit of a laugh. I'm sure you're not supposed to laugh about it. But when you get these sort of ancillary stories, it must make you think like, wow, this is where we are. It's kind of a cool byproduct of where we've come from, I guess. It, yeah, it's tough. Uh, I know what you're referencing. It's certainly hard. You know, I, I recently interviewed with the uh, Philly Inquirer and talked about all the job creation. So you look at, you know, a state like New Jersey, we've created so many jobs, we're going to continue to expand. Uh, we're trying to do good in the communities, we're active in involvement, you know, we try to be charitable and give back, um, help with, you know, some of the so social equity licenses. That's something that, you know, we're working on day in and day out. So, you know, when you hear some of those uh, other headlines, it's, it's hard, but, you know, at, at our size and scale, there's always going to be, um, you know, people maybe having some negative press about us, but it, it's unfortunate. And we're just trying to continue to stay focused, you know, continue to create jobs and expand in, in these communities. Uh, I would say by and large, people are very, very welcoming. Um, there are some communities where the, we're the largest employer by far. And that's powerful. We, we really like that. We want to continue that. So there's always going to be some negative press, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, it gave me a giggle. Gave, and I like the response. You guys were like, yeah, we're going to put more HVAC in. We'll, we'll put more HVAC in. I, I, I loved it anyway. You know, if you go to Hershey, Pennsylvania, it smells like chocolate. I don't see what the difference is, you know. Even in downtown Chicago, there's a, there's a chocolate factory very close. So two days a week, it smells like chocolate. You know, if you get off That's the train amazing. or you walk around downtown. So it's pretty relatable. That's amazing, man. Well, I think that's as good a place to wrap up as any. Brian, you've been so open and honest. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on, man. Yeah, likewise. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. I really appreciate it. Is there any way that we can help you? Are you guys hiring for something or, you know, how can the audience help you? We're always hiring. We're always, you know, open to feedback opportunities. We're always open. So, you know, absolutely. Anything we can do, we're always here, always hiring, et cetera. Good stuff, man. Well, have a great rest of your day. Thanks again. And I can't wait to try some Verano flowers sometime. Likewise. We'll have to get you some. Good stuff, man. See ya.